Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Valentine's Day to you. At this time, our students are dismissed to their classes, and if you wouldn't mind standing or remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you're just joining us, we are in a series on the book of Revelation, um, and we're still in the introduction, uh, and so we'll be looking at a short passage this morning, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. And I wanted to pause over just these three, three verses because they are so pastoral and they are so personal to um, the Apostle John, and I think they will benefit from them. John writes, beginning in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the, on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we we pause before you, acknowledging that apart from your Son, apart from abiding in the vine, we can do nothing, not only outside of ourselves, but in our own souls. And so we just come to you um, asking and begging in the name of Jesus that you would humble us and allow us to live in dependence upon you, upon your Son, that we would draw our life from him, our energy and our strength from him. I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you high and lifted up, that you you would unite our hearts to fear your holy name more than anything else, at the same time that you would generate in us a love for Christ that surpasses all loves, that we'd be be a people who are, are bold and confident in our faith, having our feet firmly planted in your gospel, knowing that we have a hope that cannot be taken away from us so we don't have to fear what happens in this life. Lord, I pray that you would feed your people this morning. I pray that you would challenge us, feed us, teach us, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us through your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. There is a saying out there that... uh, Some of the lessons in life are caught more than taught. And I think there's truth in that statement. Of course, we do need teaching. That's one of the reasons we're here is to hear the word taught. That is verbal teaching and proclamation. But there's a truth to be said that a lot of the lessons we learn in life are caught, not taught. That is that we kind of catch on to them by way of examples that are set before us. I know for me personally, um, of the many lessons that my parents taught me, and they taught me many lessons, the one that stands out the most is the lesson of perseverance. And they didn't teach me that lesson of perseverance by giving me a, a, an Oxford Dictionary definition, you know. Well, perseverance is persistence in doing something despite the difficulty or the delay in the process of success. I didn't need the definition, although there's nothing wrong with definitions, and definitions are important, especially when you're dealing with logic and argumentation. But I learned it because I just watched. I just watched my parents. You know, they were part of a church plant back in the 60s, and they're still at that same church, uh, despite 
turnovers of over nine pastors and church splits and people dying, they stayed. And that said something to me without them ever telling me. My father worked almost four decades doing the same thankless job, and it just said something to me without talking to me. They live in the same community. I watched their friendships, and they persevered in their friendships. There's this one lady in particular. Let's just call her Doris for sake of anonymity. And I, the reason I chose Doris is because I don't know anybody in the congregation named Doris, and if there's somebody online who's named Doris, I'm sorry. <laughs> but she is the kind of lady who could suck the energy out of the room within 10 seconds. Uh, she talked incessantly. She would interrupt you when you're trying to talk. She had no respect or regard for personal space, and she had no problem opening doors without knocking, including bathroom doors. Not, a, not, a, not one of my favorites, but you know what? My, 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 my parents, they entertained that friendship for over half a century until she passed. It said something to me. Today, they're, they're not today, but this year, they're closing in on 63 years of marriage. It says something to me. That is, a lot of what we learn in life is caught, not taught. And I caught the fact that perseverance is, is really essential for anything good, Right? That's, that's what I learned. Now, that, that's not to say that there's not a time to resign or a time to retire or a time to leave a, a sinking ship or to start something new or to take a detour. Provided a person is following the Lord in those things, all is well. But Christians aren't supposed to be quitters. It's different. Difference between following and, and quitting. The reason I bring this up is because this little section of text that John is going to give to us um, is a, a text that in part gives us an example. Now, I think, let me back up and say this, that I think uh, the disciples understood the importance of having teaching through example. That is, we obviously believe in verbal teaching, but there's nonverbal teaching too. And they saw Jesus. They saw how he acted. They didn't just hear his words, but they saw how he treated people, how he res responded to religious leadership, how he dealt with broken people. And they would have caught much of what he taught by the nonverbals. Paul understood the importance of having living illustrations, living examples to live by. Like, we, we need them. We need people in flesh and bone to teach us by how they do things and how they relate to people. So Paul would write to the Philippians, and it's pretty remarkable that he'd actually say this. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. In other words, follow the example I'm setting and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. They needed to see in flesh and blood a real example, and we do too. We do need verbal teaching like this, but we also need people to set the example for us that we can learn. The Apostle John knew this. So there's this little section of text. It's autobiographical in nature. Now, in one sense, this little text, verses 9 through 11, is going to explain to us how we got the book of Revelation. I mean, that's its functional intent. But I believe, based upon what he writes in these three verses about himself, 
that it's more than just a little history on how we got the book of Revelation. It discloses something about him and sets an example for the people he's writing to and an example for us. And so I want to draw out those examples that the Apostle John gives to us by way of these three verses in hopes and prayer that we would emulate them and see the importance of us being examples to others. The first one we see in this little text is what I'm going to call a communal identity. That is, the first part of verse 9, we get the strong sense that, that John believes and he sees the church as a communal entity, as a family. That's his perspective because that's the Bible's perspective on who we are as Christians. So he writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, stop for a second. Just think about who, who, who John is at this point, probably writing in the 90s, right? He is, he is the apostle. I mean, he started as a disciple of John the Baptist was introduced to Jesus, became a, a disciple of Jesus. He walked with him. He talked with him. He ate with him. He sat around campfires with him. He saw his miracles firsthand. He reclined on the, at the, during the Last Supper with him. He watched him die a horrific death. He was there at the foot of the cross. He saw him rise from the dead. He saw him ascend to the Father. He witnessed all of that firsthand. He was the author of five books of the Bible. And church history tells us that at this point, he was the last living apostle. He's like the last Jedi. <laughs> the sage of, of, of Christianity. The only one who is there, eyewitness. He would have been like a rock star in the 90s AD. Whether he was in his 80s or 90s, the fact of the matter is he was still alive. He was the last living witness. How cool would that be? Like being a congregant in Pergamum, going, the Apostle John, with his, I picture him with white hair and, you know, and his cane. He's going to come up and tell us about Jesus. He was there. That'd be awesome. But you read this and you realize how he addresses these churches in Asia Minor, there's no sense of elevation, no sense of preeminence, no sense of superiority. He addresses them as your brother. He doesn't even address them from the familial term father. Your brother. In other words, right from the get-go, he relates to these churches as family. They know him, he knows them. They love him, he loves them. He relates to them as family. But not just as family, they are also partners. Notice that word, partner, in a common Endeavor, that is, they share a common fellowship to a particular end. And notice how he describes them the partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus or in Jesus. Tribulation, kingdom, and endurance. They share in those things, and those things are all linked together. That is, they're experiencing tribulation or affliction or adversity, not just because the world's a broken place, but they are experiencing tribulation precisely because they're members of Christ's kingdom. They have worshipped Jesus as king. They are loyal to Jesus as their king, as opposed to Caesar. 
And just as Jesus was opposed for his teaching and also his declarations as to the fact that I am who I am, or before Abraham was, I am, he was opposed. And he told his disciples, as they opposed me, they're going to oppose you. So the tribulation comes from the simple fact that they're Christians. They share in tribulation together. There's that corporate identity, communal identity. He sees us himself as a we, not just a me. Members of the same kingdom inhabited by the, the spirit of the king. And then that last one, as they're experiencing tribulation because they're part of the kingdom, they now must together endure. There's that perseverance theme. They suffer together, they're saved together, and they endure together. You see, this is starkly different than how many of us Americans think with our individualism, that we think of my suffering, my being a part of the kingdom, or my endurance. John's not saying that. There is a me in life, but he's approaching them in this way to say, listen, we, we are a we, not just a me. We do these things together, including endure together. Like, isn't that part of the, 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 the fabric of, of our Christian faith? I mean, the God who saved us is a communal God existing eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one person. He is communal. He's called us to be part of his family. We are essentially a communal beings, a communal organism called the church. To think we instead of just me. That we actually do endure together. Not just alone. And he's communicating that to them. Like this is his example to them. Especially as, as we saw last week, What's this book about? Well, it's about, we said, it's about the sovereignty and glory of Christ. It's about what lies ahead for the church, not just for us, but for them. That it's, it's a picture this cosmic war, right? And it's about the church who must endure and conquer and overcome its challenges. That's what we said last week. Well, in the context of war, you can't fight by yourself, right? You just, I had the... The blessed experience of, of growing up, um, living next door to a World War II veteran for the last 18 years. As you face my house, it's on the right. And um, he passed away this last fall, which was sad for us. Um, they actually asked me to do his funeral, which I don't know why. I guess he liked me. But he's one of those guys who, when he'd ever he'd see me, and he knew I was in the service too, and so maybe that was a piece of it. Um, he'd get in his little scooter and he'd just, come on down and talk to me. And sometimes our conversations went way longer than I wanted them to. But he loved talking about his ship. He served in the Navy as a gunner on a ship called the USS Talladega. And there was one part of the story he'd tell over and over again. And that was how his ship, the USS Talladega, took wounded and dead Marines off of Iwo Jima. He'd say it, and sometimes he'd stop talking. And you could tell he wanted to cry, but didn't. There's, there's only one way you make it through 
horrific times like that. And by the way, for the first 10 years I lived to him, next to him, he couldn't talk about it. I mean, up into his 80s, he couldn't talk about it. There's only way you can, one way you can survive. Not just survive, but endure in war. Together. Together. That means one of the most important things we can do, in addition to being centered on Christ and rooted in his gospel, is rooting ourselves in each other. It sounds maybe cliche, but when tribulation comes, you need people in your life. And you need to be in people's life, which means you have to have people that you're investing in. Now, granted, it's physically impossible to invest in every single person in a church, but you can have a few that God meant us to be kind of like a spider web, you know, centered on Christ, but then interconnected. Like a net, the one strand doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hold the weight by itself, but it's tied to another strand, to another strand, and through the network, it can support tremendous weight. You have to be tied in to other people. I know it's difficult, especially we're in COVID, and you're not supposed to tie in. But one of the greatest investments you can make in your life is in the relationships with other Christians, like a net, like a spider web centered on Christ so that we endure. So he is an example right here, an example of, of this communal identity, how important it is to think we, not just me. And may I say, there are a lot of people in a lot of churches who come in thinking me, not we. And that has to change. There's demands that we change. We are a church. A church is a collective. He's also an example of suffering. Suffering for the sake of the gospel. He puts this out there. He says, I, that's the first part of verse 9, now continuing in the middle of verse 9, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he says, I'm on the island of Patmos. His church history tells us he was, he was exiled there. He was banished there. Uh, specifically for preaching the gospel. That is, on account of the word and the testimony of Jesus. History tells us that Patmos, which is a small island off the coast of Turkey, um, was, a, was a penal colony. It's like our Alcatraz, without, yet without bars, right? Like they, they sent them to this, this island where you send criminals, like Australia a couple hundred years ago. All the criminals there. So John is just sent there as, as a criminal, probably because the Roman authorities figure, here is this, again, last of the Jedis. We're going to send them off to an island to shut them up, to stop the spread of Christianity. Of course, there's a huge irony in this, because it will be in this place of exile, of banishment, where he is secluded, <laughs> that he would write the end of the Bible, that billions of people would read. So instead of um, limiting the word of God by exile, it actually ended up doing the opposite, propagating the word of God. And I love how that works, how, how it seems like when, when, when man tries to suppress the gospel, they end up propagating it instead. You try and snuff out Jesus, guess what happens? He rises from the dead. You just can't snuff out the word of God. You can't contain it, can't keep it captive. 
So they're trying to exile him, shut him down, and guess what? Now he's, he's writing. He's going to write this book. He's going to conclude Holy Scripture. What, a, what an amazing irony that is. But he's telling the people that he's serving, these seven churches, he's like, I was on the island of called Patmos because of the word, for speaking out, for telling people about Christ, for telling people that there is a, um, uh, there is a God who came in human flesh and he walked our life, he experienced our pain, he walked in, in our dust, he bled and he died for us so that we could be forgiven and pass judgment from us unto him. Then he rose to offer life to this death-sickened world with the promise of a new creation. That message is the most powerful message in the world. The only thing that has the power capable of changing the human heart is the message of the gospel or the word or the testimony of Jesus. And he's willing to suffer for it. He's willing to suffer for it. He's, he's, not, he's not talking about hypothetical suffering or theoretical suffering. No, he's saying, guess what? As I'm writing this, I'm in exile on a little rocky island. I, I can only imagine what the Christian community back on the mainland would be saying. Man, John, he's been taken out of action. He's been sidelined. He's been benched. Can you imagine Tom Brady being benched during the Super Bowl? Why would you do that? And yet, even though John is benched, he's not whining. He is not kicking the dog. He's not angry. He understands that his suffering promotes the gospel. You know, when you see somebody who's willing to be bold, and to be able to say unashamedly, unabashedly that I am a follower of Jesus and to experience some level of social shame or to be canceled, that inspires. We need to have more Christians who are willing to be canceled. Not because of your political views or because of your tweets, but because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your willingness to testify to your faith in him. Right? So the Apostle Paul wrote that when he was, again, Philippians. He said, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, his imprisonment, his suffering, is actually working to the propagation of the gospel, not the suppression of it. You get canceled, guess what? Gospel's going to be propagated. It's going to be advanced. When I hear stories about some of our college students on university campuses that are secular, willing to have the integrity and the boldness to say, without being brash or mean-spirited, to be able to unabashedly and without shame say, I love Christ. That's what we need, and that's the kind of example that John set, the kind of examples we need to be in the world to our children, to our friends, to each other. And when the world sees that, 
when they see that, you know, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of social shame. He's not afraid of being canceled. It says, you know what? We hold this truth and our Lord so precious that you can take whatever you want away. I got what's best. So this is an example of suffering for the gospel. Again, a, a strong one for us, I think, that we need to take to heart, especially here in the Bay Area. <laughs> Might be canceled next week. Third, he's an example of a, a, like a ready servant. A, a, a servant who's willing and ready to be active, even in exile. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I'm going to stop there for a second. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, as I said, he, he could have been angry about being exiled. He could have felt abandoned. He could have questioned God saying, why, are you, why, why have me here? I could be preaching. And here I am on this rocky island. Why am I here? But he doesn't. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is most probably a reference to Sunday. That is, the Christians from the first century, early on in the book of Acts, they started meeting and worshiping on Sunday instead of Sabbath or Saturday. Why? Well, it's presumed because Sunday is resurrection day. It's Easter. It's a reminder of life. And it's a, that's a tradition we've been doing for over 2,000 years. Is why the church has gathered historically on Sunday, because it's the Lord's Day. So here is John in exile. He has suffered. And what is he doing? He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day on Sunday. At very least, at very least, this is a picture of worship. That is, he is worshiping and communing and fellowship intimately with the Lord. Cross-reference to John chapter 4, same author, John the Apostle, where he hears Jesus, or he records Jesus saying that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. It's oftentimes in the context of worship that is true inner communion and intimacy with God through the gospel and through prayer that God moves and directs his people. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. It was in the context of worship where the Spirit said, set apart these two for work. So he was ready. I am here, Lord. I'm worshiping you. I'm having intimate connection with you. And it's in that context that Jesus is going to approach him and direct him to write. Now, I do want to say, for sake of argument, that I think there's more than just worship here. As I said, at very least, it's a picture of worship. But there is a sense in which the prophets experience some kind of an elevated communion with God in which the Spirit of God would take over. The point simply being that he was in a place ready. He was in a place ready for God to do something. You know, when God sidelines you or he benches you or it feels like that, it's not because he wants you out of the action. He just has a different plan for you. So right now, his plan isn't for John to preach through his mouth, but he's going to be the spokesperson for God through his pen. So if you feel sidelined sometimes, maybe because you're declining health or your knees aren't good anymore or you're in quarantine, there's always service. You can always write you can always compose. You can always make a call. You can always do something 
you can always pray. Always ready to serve the Lord. That is the example that he said. He's, he's ready and willing. Lord, where would you have me do? And in this context, we're told how the book of Revelation came to be. As he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, Revelation is full of pictures and images and symbols. This is an allusion to Exodus chapter 19, the trumpet. When God descended from the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet and speak with Moses, there was a long blast of a trumpet. It was a way of announcing that the I am is here. And now we have John in this entranced state of worship, and he hears a trumpet. In other words, this is an introduction. Someone's here. And it's not just a man. It is the risen Christ. And he says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and so forth. This is the commission, the directive, to write this final book of the Bible, to conclude the canon of Scripture. Two things just to note about this. One... What this tells us is this book that we have in our hands, the final concluding book of the Bible, does not originate with John. This is not his masterpiece. This isn't because he was just brilliant. He is going to write what he sees. This is divine communication about the future, about the glory of Christ, and about the church, and the war that's being waged, and the need for endurance. A loving gift to the church by God himself so that's one of the things to take from this. This is a divinely originated book, as is all the Bible. God is always the originator as he moves in people to write Holy Scripture. The second thing to note is he says, write what you see. Not what you hear, but write what you see. This already tells us that what's going to unfold in the chapters that follow are going to be a series of visions that he sees with his eyes. Visions that are be composed of, of symbols and, and pictures, like a bride of the lamb and a harlot riding a beast, a, a dragon and a lamb with seven horns. He's going to be seeing pictures. He's going to be writing these pictures, these visionary pictures down so that we too can see them alerting us to the fact that we are going to need to interpret and understand these pictures, these pictorial images by which God is going to communicate truth, which, quite frankly, I can't wait to get to. This excites me. That's where this book comes from. In large measure, maybe that's an overstatement, in some measure because John was ready to serve. So church, here we have, just in these three verses, an apostle that is humble. He has this collective identity, understands it's a we, it's not just a me. You endure together, suffer tribulation together, as you were a kingdom together. Having the willingness to stand up and unashamedly and unabashedly say, I am a follower of Jesus. 
And then just being willing. How do you want me to serve you, Lord? In whatever place you have me, on the bench or in the field, how can I serve you? That's his example to us, and I think God wants us to be that kind of example to each other and to our children and to the world around us. And I pray that we would, by the grace of God, follow that example. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this word you've given to us, and I I just pray for your church. This is a, a ripe time to be Christian to the core and Christian to the skin that we would represent him well. We would follow this example and we would live, uh, we would live Christ, to live as Christ and to die as gain in Christ's name. Amen.